Karen M. McManus is a number one New York Times and international best-selling author of young adult thrillers. Her books include the One of Us is Lying series, which has been turned into a television show on Peacock and Netflix, as well as the standalone novels Two Can Keep a Secret, The Cousins, You'll Be the Death of Me, and Nothing More to Tell. Karen's critically acclaimed award-winning work has been translated into more than 40 languages. Karen McManus, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you for having me. So I believe you're going to share with us a passage from your latest book, Nothing More to Tell. Yes, this is from the first chapter of Nothing More to Tell. It's a dual point of view, standalone mystery. So this is from the perspective of Bryn. And she is a teen journalist moving back to her hometown, interviewing for an internship at a true crime show. And she was very bold in getting the interview, which wasn't intended for high school students. But she's starting to play it a little bit safe. And the host is starting to get a little bit bored. So in this passage, Bryn is going to kind of swing for it. Well stated, Carly says politely. For the first time since we sat down, though, she looks a little bored and I flush. I gave what I thought was a safe response, but that was probably a mistake with someone like Carly. She didn't bring me in here because my application was safe. You do realize we're not the New York Times, though, right? True crime reporting is a very specific niche, and if you aren't passionate about it, I am, though. It's a risk to interrupt her, I know, but I can't let her dismiss me. The more I looked into motive, the more I realized that it was exactly the kind of opportunity I needed, one where I could do more than just check a box on my college applications. That's something I wanted to talk to you about. I've done all the things you mentioned in the job posting, social media, copy editing, fact-checking, etc., I have an actual resume I can show you, plus references. But also, if you're interested, I have a story idea. Oh, Carly asks. Yeah. I dig into my messenger bag and pull out the manila folder I carefully assembled in preparation for this interview. An unsolved murder from my hometown. Carly raises her brows. Are you pitching me right now, in the middle of an interview? I freeze with the folder half open, unable to tell from her tone whether she's impressed, amused, or annoyed. Yes, I admit. Is that okay? By all means, she says, lips quirking. Go on. Amused. Could be worse. The clipping I'm looking for is right on top. It's a photo from the Sturgis Times captioned, St. Ambrose students Bryn Gallagher and Noah Talbot win statewide eighth grade writing competition. My 13-year-old self was standing between two other people, smiling widely and holding up the Olympic-style medal around my neck. Aw, look how cute you were, Carly says. Congratulations. Thanks, but I didn't hang on to this because of the award. I kept it for him. I tapped my finger on the man in the picture, young, handsome, and smiling. Even in two-dimensional photo form, he's brimming with energy. This was my English teacher, Mr. Larkin. It was his first year teaching at St. Ambrose, and he was the one who insisted I enter the writing contest. He also got me started on the school paper. My throat thickens as I hear Mr. Larkin's voice in my head, as clear today as it was four years ago. You have a gift, he said, and I don't think you realize how much those words meant to me. I never told him, which is something I'll always regret. He was constantly trying to get students to live up to their potential, I say, or see it if they didn't think they had any. I look up to make sure I have Curly's full attention before adding, two months after this picture was taken, Mr. Larkin was dead, bludgeoned with a rock in the woods behind St. Ambrose. Three of my classmates found the body. This time, I tapped the boy in the picture, 
who's wearing a meadow identical to mine, including him. Yeah, so it's very hard to go home. It kind of has some parallels with your own life, but, you know, all writing does. I also like just the first line that you hook us in with, you know, what is your favorite crime? Yes. <laughs> yes. And that starts with Bren sitting in the interview room, waiting quite nervously. And she's not a true crime aficionado. She's a journalist, but she's a disgraced journalist. Something happened at her previous paper. She lost her job. She's embarrassed. And so she's sort of, you know, applied for this internship as almost a last ditch attempt to regain her good name. But she's not an expert. And she's sitting in the conference room waiting with someone who is someone who knows every single story that this true crime show has ever produced. And I had a lot of fun with that because a lot of the stories are based on my previous books. Yeah, I'm thinking the process of having them adapted and that whole mediatization. And it also just makes us question, what are those crimes? I mean, it's not just a matter of, as you say, being like nerdy about it and knowing all the details, but it's having an emotional connection with it that helps you tell that story well. Yeah. Yeah. And Bryn comes to realize that, you know, as she gets deeper into the process, she comes to understand not only that there has to be an emotional connection for this to be a good story for the show, but that her own emotional connection is making it very difficult for her to see this story clearly. And it's, it's actually impossible not to have an emotional connection. I mean, obviously, as a writer of fiction, but even as a journalist, it's almost a lie to say that you're, you know, a complete robot telling the story. Right, right. It's impossible. Of course, we're all going to bring our own perspectives and opinions and feelings into any story. But often you don't have that personal tie, at least. And that's not the case with Bryn. She has a very strong personal connection. And that's one of the things that I've been interested in exploring for a while is the just the connection with that special teacher who recognizes something in you as it sort of showed in the excerpt there. That's something I had as a very young person also. And that stays with you. Yeah, it made me wonder. I mean, I imagine you paint the picture of the author and I imagine being a good student. <laughs> Maybe this is wrong, but you oh, with all those things. <laughs> but you can also see into, you know, we're all capable of cruelty. And I think that, you know, high school can be this very cruel place as well. So just paint that picture for us of what you were like as a young person navigating some of these issues. I was a very young person. That was when I first got interested in writing. I was about eight years old when I had a teacher who asked us all to write a story. And I thought, what? Write a story? You can do that? That, that seemed very magical to me. And I loved it. And my teacher encouraged me to continue with that. And I did for quite a long time. And in high school, I did set that aside a little bit. I had been a very quiet, introverted kid for a lot of my life. And in high school, I came out of my shell a little. And I saw writing as one of those things I did as a kid. But it wasn't something that I was going to do anymore because I had other interests. I had interviewed a number of authors and I was a little daunted at just approaching this because I wasn't sure if I'm the audience for this, you know. But then I got into your writing and I saw it in line with like the Hunger Games or the Gillian Flynn books, except... And all those stories that have ca really captured our imaginations, except that your books center around schools. Yeah, I mean, they are young adults. They're written for young adults, but I think they're for everyone. And I certainly hear from a readership that's very diverse. 
And I think the common theme that people tend to come back to is that they do see themselves at least a little bit in some of the characters, maybe not who they are today, but who they were at one point. And the, the characters are always going on a journey that parallels the mystery. So it's not just about solving the crime. It's about figuring out who you are and also figuring out your relationships with the other people who are caught up in this crime with you. It's always multi-POV and maybe some family members as well. So there's personal crises or problems to solve along with the plot problems. Yeah, of course. It's an act of maturity that you see with that. And it was interesting for me. I've always been a person who's always moved on and moved into other countries and never really gone home. So it's interesting, this idea of coming home. And in one sense, you never really mature unless you're able to do that. Yeah, it's something I've returned to a few times in different books and different. And to keep a secret, one of my characters returns to her mother's hometown. So it's not her hometown, but there's a big sort of gaping emotional wound that her mom has that was created in that town. And this character believes that if she can solve this problem, she will solve her mother's problems. And of course, that's it's not possible. And she learns that at the end. And nothing more to tell, you know, Bren is literally going home to her own hometown after her teacher's murder and after a very close friendship fell apart for reasons that she doesn't fully understand. So she's coming back feeling very conflicted about this place where she was born and grew up. Yeah, it's interesting about those old pains, old wounds and scars. It really stays in our memory. I asked Carlo Van Oscar about this, and he's written those massive volumes largely about his father. And I asked him why his mother was almost an invisible presence in them. And he said that we remember most those who hurt us. Oh, absolutely. I think that's true. Those are the things that linger. Even as an author, most authors don't read their reviews. And that's because you can read a hundred really nice ones, but one critical review will stick with you and gain prominence in your mind that it doesn't, you know, probably deserve. And I think that's sort of how humans are wired in some ways. We remember the hurts more deeply. So in the passage that you read to us, it's like a, the first pitch, the first putting yourself out there and trying to get attention. Can you take us back to your first pitch? getting your first novel published? Yeah, it was a journey for me. I had not attempted to write for a very long time. And then I read The Hunger Games and I got inspired. So I decided I would write something like that. And I did. I wrote a very bad sort of knockoff, really. But I, I loved writing it. And so I started engaging with other writers on social media, started reading more about getting published, just trying to figure it all out. And that book didn't go anywhere. And then I wrote a second book. It was a little bit better, but it also didn't go anywhere. And then I got the idea for One of Us is Lying. And that was sort of the bolt of lightning where everything just clicked. You know, the idea clicked. I wrote it fast. I got an agent quickly. I think I sent off the query and I heard from her two hours later. And she offered representation a week after that. And then we sold it two weeks after that. And I think what worked about that book, not only it was just a concept, but the timing was probably right for it, but there was a real clarity to it. You know, I just told everybody it's like the breakfast club, but with murder and everybody could get it. That was something that I think we all sort of have a frame of reference for that cultural moment with that movie. 
the idea of bringing people together who seem like they have nothing in common on the surface. But if you force them to interact, they'll realize that they're not quite as different as they think. And then you add a high stakes crime to it and people could understand that very quickly. So that's like your process of tuning in. They're not quite collaborators, but it's something for your imagination to riff off of and then take it to that other level of realism. I mean, how you might be collaborating with or building upon a kind, not a structure, but a vibe of other creative works. Yeah. I mean, with me, I tend to start with sort of this hooky idea like Breakfast Club with Murder, but I don't know what that means. You know, it's just something that sticks in my head and that interests me. And then I tend to think, well, who is there? Um, I think about characters and I think about people and I think about reasons why they might be involved in something. And, you know, what are they scared of and what do they want and what are they hiding? And when I feel like I have a grasp on some interesting people who have a story to tell, then I'll go a little bit deeper into, you know, the nuts and bolts of, well, what actually happens to these people and how does it all interconnect? And I always think in ensembles, you know, I like to think about the team as almost its own character. It has its own arc and people need to have points of connection with each other. They need to have points of conflict with each other. And somehow all of that needs to tie together at the end. So it's, it's starting broad and then eventually narrowing down to the nitty gritty of what actually happens in a story and how it affects the people involved. And so for this present book, how did that process begin? This book was tricky because I had gotten the story idea. It was one of those things I thought about while I was just sort of brainstorming generally, you know, what might be an interesting crime to write about. And I had this idea of students finding their teacher's body. And I set it aside. I didn't really think about it for a while. But when I returned to it, I started fleshing it out. And I thought it was one of the strongest mysteries that I'd come up with. I really liked the twists. I thought, I can see this. But when I started to write it, it just wasn't working. And, you know, you can tell, like, there's no energy sometimes to, to a story. There's no forward momentum. It's not fun to write. And if it's not fun to write, it's not going to be fun to read. So I thought, what's wrong with this? It's a good mystery, but it's not coming together. And I had this sort of frenzied weekend where I just tried lots of different things with the chapters I had to fix what wasn't working that I couldn't fully identify or explain. And I ended up swapping out the main characters. And that was the problem. The characters were all wrong. So I plucked out the characters who I thought were going to star in the book and I built them from the ground up. And after that, it clicked. It's sort of a moment for me with every book when it clicks and I know I've got it and I just have to execute it. But the concept is where it needs to be. I don't want to give away elements of what things happen, but you mean the secondary characters became the core characters, people who didn't commit the crimes? No, the main characters were totally different people and they had different relationships to one another and they had different relationships to the other people in the story. So the secondary characters actually stayed the same. And the sort of whodunit element stayed the same, but who these people were and how they related to one another was different. Yeah. And so, and you spoke about momentum and timing and I guess your editing process, there's a music involved in that. I mean, I guess it's almost a mathematical element as well. Yeah. I mean, pacing is really important to me as 
a thriller writer. And so I do think a lot about when things happen, you know, at 25%, where should I be at halfway point? Where should I be? And you don't want it to be constrictive, but I do think there's a rhythm, you know, to thrillers and particularly in the way that I write, where if I'm, I'm very far off that mark, then that might require me going back and figuring out whether or not I'm really doing what I set out to do. Yeah, I mean, it gets even more granular than that. But, you know, some TV comedy writers have told me that they need to have a joke every few seconds. The structuring, I mean, you feel that something has to happen every... What are your beats in the novel form? Yeah, I do use a beat sheet, which is a screenwriting tool, and I find it very helpful. When I start getting to that point where I think I understand the characters and I'm trying to get into the nitty gritty of the plot, I will start planning out those moments, like what's the inciting incident? What's the first reveal? What's the midpoint? What's the next reveal? What's the climax? And then the interesting part for me is figuring out the character beats in between those. So what's happening internally with this character and what's happening in the relationships between all of the main characters that's somehow related to either this reveal or this red herring or something that's moving the mystery along, but also is moving character development along as well. And is that something that was instinctive for you that you later put a process onto? Or, I mean, the, how you learned that? Yeah, I think it was it was instinctive in some ways. You know, with One of Us is Lying, I didn't do any of this. I just wrote it. And that was very much a bolt of lightning book. But in later books that weren't as fully formed in my brain, I realized that I did need more of a process. I needed to help myself identify those character moments and those plot moments. And so it's something that over time, I wouldn't say perfected. It's definitely not perfect, but I've gotten it to a point where almost any idea I have can be stress tested through this kind of outlining. And if I can't get to a reasonable sheet where I feel like, yes, this is a full book, then it needs more thinking. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of your books. I've been reading them since pretty soon after the first book came out. One of my friends read it and recommended it to me. And I really love murder mysteries. And especially with that first book, one of my favorite things was, you know, there's, there were so many characters and they all felt so personal and I really got to know them over the course of the book. So that made getting to discovering who did it even more exciting. And actually to get into my first question, how do you like approach realism in your books? You've sort of said about the emotional truths of the characters, but would you say your characters are average and that most of these people could, like most teenagers would be able to solve these mysteries? <laughs> I mean, there's certainly, you're not writing a police procedural over here. So there is certainly an element of, would this really happen in real life? Maybe not. But I also think that the way it unfolds within the story, you can see it happening. It doesn't feel completely unrealistic. You know, a lot of things have to go right or wrong for the mystery to work. But one of the things I do try to do with my books is I try to make it feel as though it's not pure coincidence. It's not pure stumbling across something. A big part of why these characters are able to do what they do is because of who they are and because of what they learn throughout this process. And a lot of times because of them coming together in a way 
that they could not have done in the beginning. I've definitely seen that in your books. You were kind of talking about like your process of how you write your books and all the planning out and that sort of thing. And one thing I've noticed is you kind of have the main twist of who did it. And then there's also like a last page twist always, <laughs> which is like my favorite twist is always the last page twist. But like how integral is that kind of last page twist to your process of creating the book? Yeah, it's one of those things that I don't necessarily want to pressure myself to always have it there if it doesn't fit the story. I don't always know that it's going to be there when I start. And I think a good example of that is One of Us is Next, which has probably my favorite, you know, last page twist I've ever written. That wasn't in my outline initially. It was probably like chapter six or seven. I've sort of cycled through a couple POVs when it hit me that that would be a great add to the story. And so I added it in. I have to ask with so many of your stories revolving around secrets and of course lies, the things that come with covering up crimes. I mean, how good are you at keeping secrets and I should say the art of lying artfully? Right, right. It's like getting paid to lie kind of. Um, but no, I'm not a great secret keeper. I'm a vault. You know, you tell me something you don't want me to tell somebody else, you never have to worry. It's probably why you've got so many wealth. <laughs> I don't know. Did any changes somehow? Because I know that it can be hard sometimes. But it's good that you're writing about crimes because hopefully none of your close friends or family are involved in anything like that. <laughs> if like, they were, I would not tell you. <laughs> but it can be difficult having the trust of family. I know sometimes they feel like, oh, this is going to end up so. No, you know, people often ask me if I base characters off people I know or family. And I don't. I think that's a, a dangerous and slippery slope. So I'm occasionally inspired by little moments, but never, I never actually base a character on a person I know in real life. I think also there's so much stuff online and on the social media and we're all navigating it. And there are a lot of, you have to say, there's a lot of sociopaths and psychopaths you can find out there. It's like so many sociopaths and so little time. It's not difficult to find inspiration. I really appreciate that I was able to join Mia for Karen McManus's interview. She's one of my favorite authors, so that in and of itself was very exciting for me to be able to talk to her. Also, as an aspiring writer myself, I always find it fascinating how different people go about their processes of actually getting books or even short stories or poems written. Uh, in particular, the fact that Karen uses a beat sheet, something intended for an entirely different medium of writing for her novels, was really interesting to me. I also always like finding out how people got into writing in the first place. I have a lot of friends that also want to be writers, and a lot of us started at a pretty young age, like Karen McManus herself said in this interview. And I think that anyone who's ever done anything creatively can agree that going through ebbs and flows in how much you're doing that thing is part of that process. And I think that Karen shows us that it's never too late to return to those creative things that we did when we were younger. I know personally that I started writing in about middle school, and since then there have been times where I was writing every day, and there have been times when I've practically abandoned writing projects that I had been working on. 
for months at a time, but I think the most important part is that you can always come back to it. And now, on to the rest of the interview. So I guess it's that question of narrowing down and you were saying, oh, this is the strongest mystery you've written. What are those elements that have to be in place for it to be strong? Like it could be an interesting puzzle, but how do you know it has that magic extra that will keep you propelled over the long run of writing it? The best thing for me is when there's a lot of potential answers and all of the potential answers are compelling and all of them are tied to characters who are interesting. You know, the most interesting thing for me is cycling through lots of different theories. And with each one being disproved, you're a little closer to finding the actual truth, but you also learn something else that's important about a character. So it's all intertwined and in sort of understanding the tapestry of these people's connections with one another. Yeah. With the characters and how you come up with them. I've noticed that you always have LGBT characters in your stories. So I'm just wondering like what influenced you to add that representation? I mean, for example, in, in your first book, One of Us is Lying, you know, Cooper, that's an integral part of his story. Yeah, I think it's just my friend group. You know, like I said, I never based characters on people. But I did have a good friend in high school who reminded me of Cooper a little bit. And so that was something that was in my mind as I was creating that character. And just, yeah, I think I tried to make my books reflect the world that we live in. And that world changes all the time. So what may be reflective in 2017 is not necessarily going to be reflective today. But I think that's the beauty of contemporary books is that there's always new ones coming in that are a time capsule for the moment in which they were conceived and published. Yeah, I think that's great. And like, especially in the past couple of years, when I think there's been more talk about like representation in books, showing that representation in your books is really great. And the young adult space, I think as a whole is phenomenal. For that very dynamic and very diverse. So talk about your writer friend group. So I don't know if there's like a club where you exchange <laughs> stories and are you more private and you know, secretive about it until you share it with the world? Yeah, you know, I have critique partners who it's mostly writers that I was querying with. You know, I think that's kind of where you make some of your strongest initial relationships when you're all trying to figure out the industry and to grow as writers. And I still exchange work with some of the people I met back in 2015. It's just helpful to have some eyes on your story in those early stages, and especially from people who you trust and who you know will be honest with you, and but you know also will cheerlead you because you need that in those early stages. You need people to be excited along with giving you constructive comments. Yeah. And you obviously have this huge fan base and maybe they also might tell you, gosh, I love that. Not that you're <laughs> taking cues from them, but you read what's of interest. I have nieces who are huge readers and who read all of my books. And I love to hear what they think, but it's not something that I build into my process. Sure. I can't imagine what it would be like with a family giving feedback and that kind of thing. And I don't know if you're revisiting schools where you went to, or is it best to keep your imagination alive and keep a distance? Yeah, I think for me, it's more like that state of mind, that time of life of questioning and of trying to figure out who you are and what you believe and what are you going to take 
from the way that you were raised and incorporate into your adult self? And what would you like to change? That's the headspace that I go back to. And that's very accessible to me for some reason. I don't know. I think there's a version of my 17-year-old self that is always lurking beneath the surface asking why. What do you think about this? What would happen if? So it's more about that state of mind and less about a physical space or actual memories. Um, yeah, I'm actually surprised that you said you don't have someone younger like reading your books to check because your books never feel out of touch to me is the thing that I think can maybe sometimes happen with adults writing for a younger audience. Yeah. And again, I think that's just like a reflection of my life. I am surrounded <laughs> by teenagers in my family, in my neighborhood. I enjoy people that age. I like talking to them. I like hearing their points of view. And so I do understand how they speak, the language that they use, what interests them. The challenge is to just not be too current because that will date your book very quickly. So it's that balance of trying to get authentic language without being so of the moment that in two years when the book is published, it already feels a little bit old. Yes. And to your books, we're on the New York Times bestseller list for I don't know how many weeks and big pressure there or how many months. <laughs> but so I, I was wondering what the response has been in, in different countries when you have these direct cultural references. I mean, has it surprised you sometimes how they've been received in different countries? Yeah, it pleasantly surprised me. I think that, you know, they're very American in some ways and no publisher has ever asked me to make a change so that it would be more sort of digestible, I think, for a different audience. And I think that does happen sometimes. I was talking with English writers who have made changes to the American versions of their books. And that just isn't something that I've had to do. I think the readers are just willing to kind of go along with it. And every once in a while, I'll hear them say, well, I didn't fully know what you meant by this word. But I get the gist, you know, I get the emotion, I get the story, and that's what I'm here for. And in terms of when you actually see your work brought to the screen and how it diverts from how you originally wrote it, I believe in season two, it diverts. It's not going to follow your book. So, yeah, no, but what is that like? Does it get in the way of your imagination or is it add to it another layer? Yeah, I mean, it's always an exciting thing, I think. So many books are options, but so few make it through the development process. It's just a very challenging process. And a lot of great stories don't get told for a lot of reasons that have nothing to do with the book. So it's a really exciting thing to make it all the way through and to have so many talented people work on your book. But it's a different medium and there's changes that are made that you know, you're not necessarily a part of, but it does create another universe for your storytelling. And with season two, it was always going to be difficult to use one of us as next because there's a time jump and there's different characters. And then I think some of the changes that were made in season one really made it impossible. So now they're two separate paths. And I think that's fun, you know, for readers to not know what's going to happen. But I think they'll also know that I'm working on a third book for the One of Us series. And to me, that's how it all ends. So you'll know where all these characters are sort of meant to be from my perspective when their stories are, are said and done. And there's something I think sort of comforting about that. Yeah, I was especially interested in the ending of season one of One of Us is a Line because it, 
it was completely different from the book. And then like, how was that kind of having that creative control sort of taken away? You know, honestly, it's not easy. And it's one of those things that you don't know until you go through it, how are you going to feel about it? Like, I did not particularly think I needed to be deeply involved in the TV show, even though I was happy to be consulted. But as it went on, I thought, I do kind of wish that I was more involved. And I think probably if I had another adaptation done, I would want to have a different role. And that's nothing to do with like the product. The show is terrific. It's more like the process and me as a creator. It turns out I'm not great at handing stuff off and saying, have fun with that. (laughs) Can't wait to see what you do. You know, I would love to be in the room having those conversations. It's just how I'm wired. George Pelicanos was sharing, we've spoken to a number of writers who've gone into the television production world like quite heavily and how difficult that was for him initially. Those rooms are difficult. So maybe yeah. good initially. Thinking. Well, that's the thing. I mean, even when you're involved, TV is still enormously collaborative. There are so many people who are weighing in and who have a voice and who need to have a voice just based on the medium and the needs. So it's not just you at your desk, like the queen of the castle writing your story and maybe six or seven other people are heavily involved. It's dozens of people. So it's a different medium. But I think it would be interesting to see what it would be like to have that deeper involvement at some point. It's like going into training and seeing if you can take it. I don't know. I only know from speculation and conversations. Yeah. Uh, I've never tried screenwriting. I think it's very hard, you know, just reading scripts and realizing what you need to convey with so few words and how visual it all has to be. I think it's enormously challenging. Yeah, well, I think what readers will get, obviously, from your books is this. They're like friends. Your books are like this very confidential tone. And you can other people go through this. (laughs) Other people have those anxieties. And, you know, there's not a murder in their life or whatever. Right. But but it's a comfort and but it's also, you know, kind of ease them through those difficulties that we all go through, but we don't always say it. Yeah. And that's what I hear a lot from readers is that the characters feel like friends. And that's the beauty of the novel medium is how deep you can go. You know, you can have pages just inside your character's brain thinking through the problems that they're facing and how their past informs their presence. And you have that room and that space in which to do that. Going back or going back to the moment of childhood, you know, what did you learn about yourself in the writing of some of these books and things that you might not have even processed at the time, but you could have a perspective on them through the writing? You know, I think it's interesting I didn't even fully realize this pattern until a reader pointed it out to me. It was with, I think, my fourth book with the cousins. And there's a character named Archer who is an alcoholic. He's a very kind character. And he does become quite heroic at the end. But the reader said to me, oh, you, you have lots of characters who are, you know, sort of struggling with addiction. And it's not the main characters, but they have to, like, deal with that. And I thought, you know, that is... I've had so many people I love and care about who have had their struggles. And I do think there's probably a little bit of processing that's gone on for me in writing these characters. A character like Nate in the first book, who's sort of like this angry child almost because he feels like he has no control over his own situation. 
And then you have a character like Aubrey and the cousins who has a great deal of empathy, even though she may be frustrated by her uncle, because she really does understand that this is not a choice that he's making, you know, and he's doing the best that he can. And so there's all these different layers of coming to accept and love the people in your life who are having challenging times without feeling as though you have to fix it or feeling anger that they can't fix it at that moment in time. And you spoke of teachers that, you know, were important to you perhaps when you're finding your voice as a writer or at other moments. Just tell us about some of those. Well, I had a wonderful teacher, as I mentioned, in second grade who kind of inspired me to start writing and really stuck with me through elementary school and beyond as I made attempts to to find my voice. But I think part of the reason it never really went anywhere for me as a young person was because I was too afraid to share that really with anyone except for that one teacher. I never showed friends. I didn't even really show family. I just always felt that it wasn't quite good enough. And so the thing I always tell writers now, they ask for, you know, what's one tip? It's let someone else tell you no because I just told myself no for pretty much my entire, you know, young adulthood. And once I let other people tell me no, they did a lot, you know, but that is how I got better. So you've clearly been influenced a lot by the other people in your life. I'm wondering, you're from Massachusetts and two of your books so far, The Cousins and You'll Be the Death of Me have been set in Massachusetts. How much of an influence did living here have on I guess, the atmosphere of those books. Yeah, you know, I, it's funny because my first book obviously was California. Second book was Vermont. So it was a little closer to home in New England. And third book, California, because it was the sequel. Fourth book, Island off Massachusetts. Fifth book, basically my hometown. So I was sort of joking with people that I would set my sixth book in my living room because I just get closer and closer to home. But, and it, I did set it in Massachusetts and I sort of come to feel like there's a certain New England sensibility that I love. You know, I was born and raised here and I like the sort of hard practicality that we have that sort of conceals a soft center beneath. I also love the seasons and the drama that you can get from some of them. It starts in the winter and it's dark and it's cold and that informs the atmosphere. Um, Cousins also was very atmospheric in terms of that contained island feeling. And just from a practical point of view, when you're right there, you can do your research, you can check timing with You'll Be the Death of Me. It all happened in a day. So I actually followed my character's roots taking trains and driving to make sure that it was feasible. Yeah. I'm also from Massachusetts, so I could kind of be like, oh yeah, that's sort of a thing. I recognize it. (laughs) But how do you think it translates to people that maybe aren't from New England? Or do you have to, do you think about that? Or do you think that just like in your being so familiar that it is able to come across no matter where someone's from? Yeah. I mean, for me as a reader, I'm, I never mind if I I'm not familiar with the setting. I kind of appreciate being pulled into it and learning about it. So I guess that's kind of my assumption is that people will come along for the ride with me and they'll pick up what they need to know to enjoy the story along the way. So as you think about the future and education and the importance of the arts, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? 
I mean, you know, with my work, I always hope first and foremost to entertain. You know, one of the things that I appreciate hearing is that kids who don't like to read like my books and they'll pick them up. And I hope that they will be maybe a window to reading more, reading differently. There's also, even though they're murder mysteries, you know, they have themes of acceptance, you know, both of yourself and of others. And that's something that I hope my readers take away. You know, I think this generation is, I always feel hopeful when I talk to my young readers. I think there's, there's a passion and inclusiveness and open-mindedness that this generation has. Thank you, Karen McManus, for sharing with us the importance of perseverance and belief in yourself and your mysteries that help young people navigate growing up with perspective and insight and acceptance of the imperfections of life. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you for having me. It was great meeting you both. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Ellen F. Stothew with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Ellen F. Stothew. Digital Media Coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicolas Anodalis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.